three, two, one. And we're back again with another episode of Cut Talk Podcast. Cut Talk Radio, call it what you want. Just don't forget to cut talk. Thank you to everybody who's been supporting the podcast and showing love to the channel on YouTube, on Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate all the support we've been getting recently. Please continue to do so. Continue to like all the videos, comment, and uh, subscribe to the channel. You know, it, it gives us... Uh, motivation to keep making these episodes and uh keep getting guests for you guys and uh bringing the best content and uh podcast possible but today we have an exciting episode of somebody who's new to the podcast and that's always exciting but yeah let me get out the way and allow them to introduce themselves rich yes sir uh you, you can introduce yourself okay i'm i'm rich walton and uh i was a uh uh contractor over in afghanistan and uh, I had nothing to do with the military from the standpoint of being involved in the military as an, an involved enlisted person or officer, but went over there as a civilian. And so um, it was one of those things. Uh, you want me to just continue from how I got over there, Ralph? Uh, yeah. So, you know, uh, as Rich just mentioned, everybody, you know, he's a contractor. He works on projects. Can you just give us a little bit of a background about maybe where you started in uh in contracting, construction, building, was that something that you've always been interested in as a child? Yeah, I uh, had my own architecture uh, design business in the Portland, Oregon area for over 30 years. And my uh, wife's family have always been contractors, uh, home builders. And so I kind of, when I first got out of school, I went and worked for them for a while and then started up my own architecture business. And up until 2008, I off and on had about 10 different uh guys and girls working for me in my architecture firm, mostly doing residential, but also doing some small hotels and motels and little buildings like that for, uh, like I said, for over 30 years. Nice. So, um, so, you know, uh, we kind of went through a bit amount of time there. So can we go back? You know, you had, we were talking about it earlier about how you came up in Oregon, as you mentioned, and, uh, you know, a little bit about your background. So can you tell us about the community you grew up in, uh, being a child and, you know, uh, what that was like? Sure. Yeah, I grew up in uh, in, in North Portland. It's an area up here. It's uh, mostly uh, blue collar workers. Uh, grew up in a, in a neighborhood that was uh, maybe not the safest neighborhood around. But um, it was something that, uh, you know, I would never change it for anything else in the world. Made a lot of friends, had a lot of friends, but had a wide diversity of groups. I would say the best way to explain North Portland in the time that I grew up in in the 50s was it was a fully uh, uh, immigrate uh, type of uh, uh, neighborhood. I had friends that were from uh, China, uh, friends of mine that escaped out of Cuba. I had friends of mine from Hungary. I had friends of mine from all over the, the world that came and worked in the blue collar industry out there in, in North Portland, in the mills, in the factories and those type of things. That's interesting. And, uh, you know, of course, I want to get into the specifics of the contract and everything like that. But, you know, we have an opportunity here. You mentioned growing up in the 50s, you know, growing up, uh, you know, which I imagine was a completely different world than what we see today especially in terms of uh, the way society operates. Can you just give us a little, uh, maybe a lens into what the world was like back then or how, how you experienced it? Sure. You know, uh, back in those days, um, everybody, you know, just like I had to buy my own bicycle. Um, and so I had to earn my own money. And, and I worked out in the strawberry fields and the raspberry fields and bean fields. That's kind of a big thing up here. So there would be a lot of us younger kids working out in the fields in those days. 
to kind of supplement our income that, um, you know, to help our parents out to be able to buy different things like that. Um, it was, um, you know, everything you would, you would have a situation where you might get into some fights and things like that. I took boxing as a kid, um, you know, for a little while, but, um, it was, uh, maybe a little bit of a rough neighborhood, but, uh, you know, it was also a neighborhood that I enjoyed growing up in too. Was they growing up, you know, because we come from South Central uh, and, um, you know, here, I'm sure a lot of the, the younger kids and even adults can relate to that, you know, being a little rough around the edges, uh, growing up through the adversity. Do, would you say that that made you more assertive in, in what you wanted that you were, did that make you a go-getter? Yeah, I would say so. My, my grandparents were immigrants uh, on one side of my family from Sweden. And my grandfather used to always tell me, uh, you're going to be the first person to graduate from college in our family. That's the good news. The bad news is you're going to have to pay for it yourself. But when I'm talking about a diverse neighborhood, Ralph, I mean, I had uh, guys that I grew up with that were like uh, uh, high up in like the, the gangs, the Gypsy Jokers. Uh, you know, they'd be maybe equivalent to like, you know, the Hells Angels down where you guys were at. And it was just one of those things that we grew up together and they took one route and went one direction and I took a, another route and went in the other direction. So, but, um, you know, we'd see people on, we'd see each other on the street and say hello and give each other a big hug and knew where everybody was at and what they were doing. Right. The importance of community. And, um, so, so you go, you know, you grow up, you're in the fields, you're working, you know, you buy your bike and, uh, that's the childhood. Um, so, uh, you went through how about how long did that last until what, did you do that until you were out of high school or no usually yeah, we worked in the fields until um usually until you're about seventh eighth grade um then i got a paper route and i got so excited about that i came home and told my dad i got a job where i could work seven days a week and he kind of looked at me like you know maybe something's a little off with me <laughs> but uh getting up at 5 30 in the morning delivering newspapers coming home, eating a bowl of cereal maybe, and then heading off to school with still newspaper ink on your hands. Um, so, you know, went from that, then he went to high school and I started working in the restaurants because I found out if you worked in a restaurant, you got a free meal. So that always was kind of a bonus there and then worked all my way through there and then went to work in warehouses and unloading trucks, uh, you know, uh, in college and put my way through school that way. That's interesting. You know, that's that type of ambition. You don't really see it too often now. You know, that real um, that willingness to, you know, put in so many hours. You know, it's, it's a different uh, there's a different attitude about that now. You know, people feel more um, like, oh, no, I should work. I guess they would say, like, work smarter, not harder, you know. But I mean, it's interesting, right, because that's a whole different uh, dynamic of growing up in that environment where it was a part of the community you know it's like everybody does it we already know you know you're gonna go work that then you're gonna get your paper out so what are some of the lessons that you learned working at such a young age uh what are some of the things that you took with you into adulthood well i would say one some of the lessons were that you know i wasn't necessarily the smartest person in in the classroom or in the school but i could work hard or harder than anybody else and what I typically talk to a lot of the young people today, I try to tell them, you know, don't do drugs, work hard and get a good education. You know, you don't have to necessarily go to college. You can work in the trades. You can do a lot of the other different things, you know, but if you kind of take those things with you, then you can carry that through all the way through life. And so those are some of the things that 
I learned was, you know, that you could always work. Like I said, when I was paying off uh, going to college, uh, I would work in a warehouse all day unloading boxcars, 100 pound bags of flour and sugar. And then I would go straight from there to a restaurant and work in a restaurant as a waiter. And then I would, wow. you know, get down at midnight and go back to the warehouse. I'd sleep in my car that I had with a little alarm clock in there. So it'd wake me up at 3.30 in the morning so I could start working in the warehouse again. So, you know, it's one of those things where if you want to work hard, you know, you can get ahead, you know, if, if you know, if you really try. That's awesome. Truly inspirational. So we go through high school, you know, you get you got your route then you get into college. By the time you're, you're ready to go to college, <clears throat> is there is there an idea in your head already of what you want to do or are you more undecided about it? No, I, I went. I wanted to become an architect because I knew how to draw and I like drawing and uh, doing artwork. And so my uh, counselors in school said, well, then you want to become an architect. They said, you don't want to become an engineer, Rich, because you're not very good at math. <laughs> oh, man, so, math will get you. So I said, OK, I like drawing cartoons and stuff. Yeah, so maybe yeah. I could go you know, that direction. So yeah, that's what I did. Yeah, I'll make the drawings and pass it over to the to the engineers. Right. Uh, no, that's that's awesome. So so I mean, you had a clear plan in your head in your in the in Oregon there where you grew up. Was that something that was popular? Were there a lot of architects coming out at that time? Uh, the only school at that time that had it was the University of Oregon. That's the Oregon Ducks. And then oh, that's right, the right. architecture school in Oregon State is the school for the engineers. So they actually had them two different two different colleges at that time. Interesting. OK, so, you you know, you know what you want to do. Your, you know, architecture. We're, we're going in, you know, you mentioned you're working. So is it pretty much uh, work, school, work, school cycle at this point? Yeah, that's what it was. And even when I was going to school, uh, I during the school time, I was also washing dishes, you know, where I had all my uh, uh, friends, if you want, you know, coming up from California that had, I never even seen a credit card in my whole life. <laughs> yeah. And so they, at that time, uh, the University of Oregon was 40% Californians. And so it was amazing to me. And matter of fact, one spring break, you might enjoy this. I went down to a place down in, uh, down in California, down somewhere down in L.A. I can't remember what it's called. But uh, uh, one of the guys I knew, his dad owned a manufacturing plant down there, a machine shop. And I told him the only way I could come down there and spend spring break is if I could get a job in his machine shop. So he said, yeah, sure. And so they got me a job in the machine shop with all the local guys there. Um, and I was sanding and grinding machines and washing them and cleaning them up, big things like that. So I do that during the day. And then in the nighttime, we'd go out and party and have a good time at the beach and everything like that. And the next day they'd sleep in and I'd go back to the machine shop. Wow. That is, man, that's, I'm telling you, you don't hear that nowadays, you know, looking for a job on vacation. I mean, that's, that's something you definitely don't uh, find often now, but I mean, that's incredible. So, so, okay. So let's, uh, you go through, so once you graduate, once you get towards graduation, are you still working? Once you're getting towards the end of the your education there at Oregon, are you still working by the time you're graduating, or are you already looking at uh, at your future career at that point? No, I I worked for um, um, two jobs until I was able to pay off all my student loans, and then I went to do the architecture work because they didn't pay very much for uh, apprentice draftsmen in those days. We were making about uh, somewhere around $7 an hour, you know, around that time. And so working in the warehouse as uh, unloading boxcars, I was making $10 an hour. But I decided I wanted to put my degree to 
to work. And uh, so I took a cut in pay and went to work for an architecture firm. That's interesting. So once you, okay, so once you start at the architecture firm, what's your, uh, what's your first, uh, your initial reaction? You know, once you get into the field for the first time and you're doing what you, what you've been studying for, how did that feel? Um, I learned a lot. I learned several things, but I, I looked at a guy sitting right next to me and I said, uh, how long you been here? And he goes, I've been here like six years. Yeah. And I said, and you're still only making like $7 an hour. And he goes, yeah. <laughs> I go, man, I got to find some other gig. This isn't going to cut it. So, uh, an engineer that I knew, an older gentleman, he says, well, Rich, I like your designs. Why don't you start up your design company and I'll do the engineering for you, you know, for a fee. Mm -hmm. And so that's how it all started out for me. That's and then you had also mentioned that you worked for the architecture firm. Uh, was that the one that you were talking about? Uh, you said it was your girlfriend's family's one. It was my no, my wife's oh, uh, family owned had a construction company. Okay. And so that's when I first went to work for them. I said I'd like was to work after, for you and learn how to build. Was that after the the first job that you had, or was that before? That that was during the first job. Oh. Okay. And he said. Uh, you don't have any skills as a framer or a, or a builder. So yeah. basically, you know, I don't have any need for you. And so I told him, I said, okay, I'll work on Saturdays and Sundays for you for free until you feel uh, I've learned enough that you can start paying me. So I did that for several months working for free. Okay. Interesting. So um, can you tell us maybe uh, what were, I want to ask about that, but before that, I want to ask, what was what was one of the first projects that you ever worked on where you really got to apply that knowledge of being um, an architect? For, for myself or working for another firm? Uh, maybe yourself and then once okay. you became professional. Yeah. So for myself, I started uh, picking up jobs, uh, designing houses for people. Mm -hmm. And that's when it all kind of started out. So we always used to call those side jobs. So you're still working for an architecture firm, but you're doing stuff in the evening and on the weekends, you know, on the side. And then that way the people are paying you directly, you know, not going to the company that you're the firm that you actually work for. And it got to the point where I was making more on the side than I was, you know, making for the company that I was working for. And that what got me to initially break away from, working for another company and working for myself. Right. That's interesting. So I, I want to ask you um, if you have any advice for people who, because, you know, you're telling the story here and the story is pretty much of somebody who is going out there and not waiting for the opportunity to come knocking, but, you know, chasing the opportunity. So would you, for any architects uh, in the current time or people who maybe you know, they have their sketches, they have their drawings, but they don't know what to do with them. Uh, would you have any advice for those people? You know, obviously you weren't the person who was sitting around. You were out there trying to look for something. Uh, and how would you how would somebody find those type of opportunities or things like that? Well, I would suggest for them to, to go around and just start knocking on doors. And that's what I basically did. I found one of my biggest uh, uh client base was actually um, realtors. And so I would start going to realtors and saying, you know what, if you have a client that is interested in designing or building a house on a lot, I'll come out there and talk to them and stand on the lot and won't charge anybody anything. And if your client feels that they feel comfortable with me designing their house, then we'll work together on that. Also, they could go to contractors and say, hey, I'm just getting started because they're always looking for a way to 
have somebody do work for them and say, you know, I'm willing to do this amount of work and this kind of stuff for you, you know, and, and here's some of my drawings that um, I have to show you. And so I think that's one of the major things is if you can have, even if you draw up some houses or some kind of buildings yourself, just without getting paid for it, but just have it, then you could go out and show people, hey, here's what I can do. And they can look at them and go, oh, okay, I like that. All right, uh, let me use you on this other project or on this other house or even on a little remodel, right. uh, you know, adding a room on something. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, because architecture is one of those things where, as you mentioned, you know, you can work for a firm, but then again, you know, it's also, there's plenty of opportunity everywhere to just, you know, insert yourself somewhere. And, you know, I have a friend who's an architect and, She's working at a firm right now, but she's in Las Vegas, you know, so you can imagine right now in Vegas, it's probably a whole different, um, you know, there's a lot of opportunities booming over there, you know, business is booming. Uh, but yeah, so you mentioned, you know, you go and you volunteer yourself, you know, for your wife's uh, family's architecture, you know, you, you, you tell them that you want to work for free until you f they feel like, you know, you, you've earned a wage so how much was that experience you know not being paid how much how valuable was that you know because a lot of people you know they stray away from like internships things like that you know they want to be paid for their work and maybe rightly so you know but what would you say uh that you earned from just being able to uh, apply yourself or have being in a situation where you're able to gain experience how valuable was that for you that was Raul was super valuable. And I'll, I'll explain why, because after a while, I got the reputation from all the contractors and people that I worked with that not only do I know how to draw something, but I know how it actually goes together. And so uh, that is a big deal because you, one of the biggest criticisms you get from people in our field and architecture and different and engineering type of things is people will draw something up and it works on paper, but it doesn't work actually out in the field. And so with my exposure to being out and actually lifting the boards, nailing them together, sawing them and doing things like that, I could realize, okay, you know, this is how stuff actually goes together. And I would include that in my drawings. And if you ever talk to any of the contractors that ever worked with me, they just said, you know, Rich's stuff goes together so easy and 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 everything works out to most most cases. You know, we still, you know, everybody makes mistakes, but for the most part, everything just, you know, came together and they said, why don't we get stuff from other architects and, and people like that that work out this way? And unfortunately, they maybe didn't have the hands-on experience that I had actually, you know, nailing and sawing boards and putting stuff together. Right, right. And when, while you're doing that, you know, you're, you're at this point, you've graduated, you know, you have your degree, you're, you're now a full-blown architect. Were there ever moments where you thought back to, you know, maybe the paper route or to the fields when you were working? Did I, did that help keep you motivated? Did that help with, uh, with you you know maintaining that level of ambition where you know you're always willing to to work? Yeah, I I'd always have a saying. I mean, I don't know where it originally came from, you know, but what goes around comes around. I always remember this one first one of my first remodel jobs I did. I think it was uh, about nine hundred dollars, and I just thought there's just no way you know that I'm gonna ever you know be able to get paid for all the time and effort I put in here. But I, you know, I, I just figured this might lead on to something else differently. Okay. So I just even did the job. I know I had more than $900 worth of time in it, but I just, you know, did the best job I could. 
about four weeks later, that same gentleman came to me and had a friend of his that wanted to design a 4,000 square foot house. Wow. And so it's one of those things by word of mouth. And then, like I said, what goes around comes around. Interesting. I'm sure a lot of people can, you know, can gain inspiration from that. You know, just being able to, I, you know, you really, it's, it really sounds like you were always humble as well. You know, you never, you never asked for more than what you got, but you were always willing to uh, do the work, you know, do the work first. And then, you know, whatever came with it, came with it. Uh, so as you go through the firm, you know, now you're working for your wife's family's firm at the point that they start to pay you. Uh, what kinds of jobs are you doing at that? Is it just, again, mostly residential? Yeah, just mostly residential work uh, is what they did. They were home builders. And so um, I ended up working for them for a few years um, before I actually went full time out on myself. But um, yeah, so that is how I got up to the point where I was actually working for them. And actually, I went into the office and I became a salesman for them. And so I was actually selling uh, new construction houses to be built. Oh, that's interesting. So, so you know, you have the in the infield boots on the ground experience, and then you switch over to sales, which is a completely different beast. Uh, did you find a natural? Were you natural at at being a salesman because you understood the product, or was it difficult to get into it? For me, it was very difficult. <laughs> I didn't like talking yeah. in front of people or or meeting people. Um, but what I did have to offer is I set my drawing board up in their garage of their model home. And so when people come in, I could draw something up for them and say, hey, would you like us to build something like this for you? And, and we'd work that way. But I knew I was I was scared to death of, of sales and, and talking to people. So um, I, I took a couple salesman classes and always trying to do stuff better. And I paid for my own way to take what was called a Dale Carnegie class on sales. And so I, you know, became better at being able to talk and speak in front of people. Uh, what were some of the key lessons that were taught in that in be, being a salesman? Because, you know, now uh, with YouTube and stuff, you know, it's pretty much easy to just look up anything, you know, like, oh, how to be a salesman, how to, you know, whatever the case, you know, there's the YouTube video for everything. But back then, you know, things were more practical. What were some of the takeaways or some of the practices maybe that they had given you at the time? What, what helped boost your confidence into becoming a salesman? Well, one of the things they would talk about was, you know, just to, to talk plainly to people. Do not condone, criticize, or complain to somebody about anything when you're talking to them about whatever your field of or new houses or construction or drawing or whatever. Always look to help out the person and to, you know, truly listen. You know, I think that's probably one of the major things is, is to just listen to what people have to say because i used to tell the uh, my employees that work for me i said have somebody tell you what they don't like about something tells you just as much as something that they do like right right so you go through the the years there and then you become a salesman was that the end of your 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 string right there at the architect firm Yes. Yeah. And in the home building company for that was with my my wife's family. And that's when I went out on my own. So at this point, you know, uh, was the idea already kind of looming in your head that you wanted to start your own business or did it come about? Like no, suddenly? that is kind of something that at that time in the, that was like in the 70s and, and whatever. And that was a big push at that time um, for everybody to start their own businesses. I mean, for a lot of people, that was the dream. 
you know, was to have your own business. Okay, so you you know, so it's a it's more popular, right? Back then, it was more of a standard, I guess you could say that people were, you know, business owners, right? But you had you had an advantage in a sense because you were educated, you had experience in the work that you wanted to start a business for. You know, you weren't just going into it blindly. You know, you already had experience working for other firms. So once you start your own business, um, can you kind of take us through the steps there? What, what were the months like leading up to it? And what was it like uh, right in the beginning? Well, first of all, in architecture and construction in general, it's feast or famine. You know, you might have more work than you can take on. And then you might have, you know, times where you can't. Um, so it was trying to balance all that. And then if you hired somebody, you know, then you're obligated to, you know, to take care of them and supply them with enough work. And then all of a sudden, if the work dropped off, you know, you had to lay people off. And that was just uh, something that I just uh, was gut wrenching for me. I, I, my wife would always ask me, she says, you spend as much time trying to find people jobs that you have to lay off as you do, you know, actually doing the work, because I felt so obligated that if I had people working for me, and I, and I didn't have any work coming in, I had to lay somebody off, I would call other architecture firms and see if they had any openings to hire some of the people that were working for me. At the time, what was the minimum wage, just to paint a picture here for the people listening? Uh, that was probably around $7 an hour. Okay, interesting. So people were making $7 an hour uh, at an architecture firm. And as you mentioned, the work, what, what were some of the, let's see, in the beginning, was it difficult to find projects? Yeah, it was. You know, you, you did. I used to tell people that I had to work twice. I had my well, first job was going out and finding the work. And then the second job was actually coming back and, and designing and drawing it up. So sometimes you felt like you're doing twice as much work to end up with the same paycheck as say another one of my friends that might have a different kinds of uh, field of, uh, you know, self-employment. So uh, at what point did business start to pick up? Well, at what point would you say that things kind of got stable? Uh, probably about, uh, I would say about uh, 1985, something like that. What was uh, significant about that year? Was it, was there a certain project that you got or did business just start to boom? It started to boom. We came out of a recession from 1980, um, and that was a real difficult time for everybody here in Oregon. At that time, the uh, state of Oregon produced uh, three quarters of the plywood for the whole United States. And with the downturn and the recession, all the mills started closing down. And you can see how that would just kind of uh, snowball along, you know, with everybody else, you know, uh, being, um, you know, unemployed. And then after that, it started to pick back up again, and that's when things started booming. So before that, did you ever, you know, you mentioned the recession. Did you, was there ever a thought in your mind that you should maybe leave Oregon, or were you just planted there? Did that never come to your mind? No, the only place I ever thought about moving to was eastern Oregon. But oh, okay. that's just because it was, uh, you know, I like the drier weather and that type of stuff. But no, I never really had any thoughts of leaving Oregon at all. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So you make it past the recession, business starts to boom, things are looking good. So from 1985 on, would you say that's, that was the heyday of the, of the firm? Yes. Uh-huh. Up till 2008. Oh, which was the next recession. Yeah. Okay. So what, exactly. was, so what was the, 
what were some of the the projects that you remember during that time? You know, were there some that you uh, liked, especially? Were there some memories from that time? Yeah, I did a lot of custom homes. Uh, I it also, I guess uh, you could look up and fact check me, but I think in the 1980s and 90s, I think we had like uh, 50,000 Californians moving to Oregon at that time. <laughs> Yeah. And so we had a lot of influx where people in San Francisco were selling their 1500 square foot house for like $700,000. And we could design and build them a 4,000 square foot house up here for less than that. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, was that as an architect, was that something that you really enjoyed? Did you enjoy the bigger projects that took more time, more creativity to them? At that time, I did, you know, I because it because it gave me a lot more creativity. I didn't have necessarily a budget. Uh, I did design some homes for a Japanese company that came into Oregon, and they had me designing homes over in Japan for them. Um, and we did what they called a Street of Dreams house, and they told me there wasn't a budget. And I said, "There's always a budget," and they told me, "No, there isn't." And halfway through the project, they told me. Uh, yes, we do have a budget. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Once the numbers start to add up, That's you know, right. it's like, oh, okay, yeah. maybe, maybe we should s slow down a little bit. Yeah. Um, okay, so we get through that, you know, 1985 to, you, you said, uh, 08, which is about 17, no, 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 23 years, actually. So yeah. that time, I mean, you know, uh, I imagine those were the, the years, right? Those were just, you know, you were probably the most successful at that time in terms of business. Yeah. You know, um, I would go to my sons. I have three sons. They were all uh, wrestlers and we'd go to the wrestling tournaments and I would take a walkie talkie and I'd sit out in my car and I would sit there and draw. Cause by that time we had computers right. and up until, you know, a while before that we didn't have computers. And so, um, I could sit out there and draw. My wife would say, okay, the son's up for a wrestling match. I'd go in, I'd watch him wrestle in the gym, and then I'd come back out and, and continue drawing. That's fascinating. You brought up you brought up something, uh, technology, right? So obviously in 1985 and, and even back to your younger days, technology wasn't as big as a factor. You know, it was maybe becoming coming into development rather, but it wasn't at where it is today. And even back then it wasn't to where it is today, but it was becoming a thing. It was becoming a part of everyday life. Uh, do you remember that switch or that that those times when you guys, as you mentioned, computers? What what was it like when you went from having to everything was pen and pad or pencil and paper, and you had to, or now you had a new tool which was a computer? You know, how soon did you start to utilize those tools and and what was the impact of that on on architecture, not only in your own life but as a field in general? Well, uh, the first thing that came about was in uh, 1973, they came out with the first handheld calculator. And um, I can't remember if it was a Texas Instrument or HP, but uh, it cost me $150. Wow. Um, to kind of track that, my tuition that term at the University of Oregon was 136 Wow. So it was more, and all that, all that uh, um, calculator did was add, subtract, multiply, and divide, and I think it did square root. Um, fast forward a little bit. Um, we got into where they were doing computers and, you know, doing all kinds of things. I, I kept thinking, well, there's no way you can draw on a computer. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, you know, uh, it just uh, was not any feasible. Well, eventually, you know, they 
proved me wrong and they came out with different software programs and everything. So for a while there, I was hiring um, college graduates to actually do the computer and the AutoCAD drawings. I'd still draw by hand, do the prelims, and I'd hand it off to them and then they'd put it on the computer. And I tried going to the community college a couple times. By this time, I was in my 40s. And um, I remember sitting in a community college class and this guy sitting right next to me, big kind of burly guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, he just goes, say, dude, what happened? <laughs> Downsized? <laughs> you know? And he, was, he had some tats and some things going on, yeah, some yeah. piercings and things. And I just said, no, I'm just trying to learn how to draw, you know, because he's like, you know, 19, 20, and I was like in my 40s. Well, I, it still didn't make sense to me. I still had a hard time. And then one day I was watching a commercial on TV, and there was this guy sitting on the beach with his laptop, and I like to surf up here. And so I looked at that, and I went, are you telling me I can go to the beach, draw, go out and surf, come back, draw, go back out and surf and draw? Right, right. So then all of a sudden a light went off in my head and my wife said, so all it took was to see a commercial where you could think of better ways to go out and skip work and surf. And I said, yes. So, so that, that, that's when I made the switch and learned how to, you know, actually get more into drawing on the computer. That's interesting. So, I mean, the times were changing, as you mentioned, you, you, there was a, there was a demand now for younger uh, college students because they were growing up and learning these programs. And as you mentioned, you were able to draw and then hand it off to them. And at that point, were the models 3D or were they still uh, like blueprint type models? They were still just 2D. They were just starting to get into the 3D when I uh, quit the business in 2008. I mean, how how much of a change? I can imagine, you know, from just having to draw it on your hands, how quick was the process now when that happened? Um, just for drawing on the computer? Yeah, I guess, um, like. Um, well, I, I would say it would probably at least cut in half, um, because you didn't have the problem where if in the old days when we were doing it by hand, you could erase and actually burn a hole in the paper or the vellum or whatever you're doing. Mm -hmm. And you could only revise something so many times. And then all of a sudden, if somebody said, Hey, I need this house or this building flipped, you know, for another lot or something. In the old days, you'd have to redraw the whole thing. Right. You know, in the with the computer, you just hit mirror and boom, it's it's mirrored, you know. Yeah. Now you have a duplicate and now you can pretty much just right make any changes you need to make, which I mean, is very convenient. Definitely. I can imagine. So once you start to get into uh once you start to get into that, what around time was that that you had the laptop and all that stuff? Uh, that was, I think the first one I bought was around 1990 something. Okay, and they so were very expensive. Yeah, it was like an Intel 396. And my wife and I had to take a second mortgage out on our house because it cost about $10,000. Wow. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I can't even imagine, you know, laptops go for like maybe a couple hundred bucks nowadays. Yeah. But back then, you know, it was cutting edge. So once you start to, you know, implement those and, and use those uh, and then you get into the did the pro, did you were you able to take on more projects because of that? Yeah. And the other thing was nice is I could have uh, other people doing work for me from their homes. 
uh, you know, more remote type of situation because uh, my office would only handle, uh, I had a little building that I worked out of, would only handle maybe about three or four people in it. And uh, this way I was able to, if you want to call it, sub out the work to other people to do the drawings. And I can just call them on the phone and say, hey, you know, how are we doing on this? Come by this afternoon, show me what you got and that type of thing. Cool, cool. So we, you know, we get through that point and then, you know, you get into the 2000s. Was it was uh, were things still the same once you got into the 2000s before the recession? Yeah. Yeah. They were still going going pretty good. OK. And then the recession hits and uh, homes and everything else pretty much just goes down. So now there's no longer as much of a need for architects because people can't afford the homes anymore. Right. It was just everything. The banks were having, you know, issues. And I always tell people it's a recession when your neighbor's out of work. It's a depression when you're out of work. Mm -hmm. And so my wife and I tried to hold on as long as we could because we went through the 1980, you know, recession. And they kept telling us, oh, it's just going to be this year. Oh, it's just going to be, you know, a little bit longer, a little bit longer. Well, it finally got to the point where we just couldn't sustain the business anymore. A lot of my contractors were retiring early because they just didn't have any work or they were going bankrupt and going out of business and the realtors couldn't sell any houses because of the interest rates and everything else and so it was just a downward spiral yeah so can you give us a little bit of a more in-depth maybe analysis of the time because uh you know our, our audience here is a little bit younger so we you know they definitely don't remember those times you know and i think i was 11 at the time maybe so you know, my I was still a young kid, but um, what what was it like? You know, what what was the the atmosphere? What was the energy around people at that time? You know, what were the news headlines? What was being said about the situation? Was it a calm situation, or was it just uh, hectic right away? It was it was it was hectic. Um, you know, everybody was trying to calm us all down, saying, "Hey, you know, um, things are going to get better. Just hold in there. They're going to get better." They didn't, but um, there were like, just say they built a new Costco out by us. They had like 80 jobs available. They had 4,000 people apply. Wow. Um, I, I decided, well, maybe I can try to get on, take on some side work from one of the bigger architecture firms downtown. I called them and said, I just had to lay off the 10 guys and gals working for me. Do you have anything that I can, you know, maybe help you guys out with and kind of, you know, keep my business just kind of sustained. And they said, Rich, we just laid off 300. Wow. And so it was like, everybody was just like, what, 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 you know? And, and, and um, of course, all I know about is construction and, and the architecture engineering stuff. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's other industries that were, you know, impacted like the high tech people and Intel and all those type of people probably, you know. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, that sounds, sounds tragic, you know? And um, so, wow. While that's going on, uh, at what point did things start to turn up? Or was there a, a certain moment in time when people started to, maybe things started to go back to normal a little bit? Or, Well, for me, Ro, that's when I ended up going over to Afghanistan because my wife was a stay-at-home mom and we just had to do something. And I just couldn't find any work anywhere. I went to Home Depot. I went to Costco. I went to, you know, other architecture firms. I was just, you know, I was just going all over the place trying to find work just to, you know, make ends meet. And finally, an engineer friend of mine was overseas in Afghanistan. And, you know, not once did I ever think about going over there. Uh, 
let me know. He says, hey, I think I can get you a job over here as a construction manager just because you're experiencing construction and, and architecture. Um, just to kind of go back a little bit, I was in college during the Vietnam War. And so I had uh, a deferment because I was in college and they said, well, have you go to Vietnam or go into the military after you get out of college? And by the time I got out of college, they said, well, we're, we're pulling out, we're going downsizing. And my friends coming that did come back from Vietnam said, um, hey, you know, it's a place you probably don't want to go. So not ever been in the military or had anybody in the military. So I just said, okay, you know, and, uh, so then I always kind of felt a little bad about not, you know, doing my all when I saw my friends coming back with different injuries and other things that they were dealing with from Vietnam. And so um, I felt a little guilty about that. Well, when I this came up and the gentleman said, hey, I think I have something over here in Afghanistan for you. Uh, my first almost question was like, Afghan what? You know, I heard Iraq, you know, but I didn't yeah, yeah. know about Afghanistan too much. I mean, I did from architecture standpoint because Alexander the Great went there. But right. um, but anyway, um, so that's how that whole thing got spun up to where I um, went over to Afghanistan, took a job as a construction manager with no idea what to do. I had $300 in my pocket, a one-way ticket to Baghdad, Iraq, where I was first going to go and just hopped on a plane and... Uh, left by myself, you know, right. and ended up over there. Right. And uh, before we get to Afghanistan, you know, yeah. I, I, you, you took a little, you mentioned something there, you know, another historical event, the the Vietnam War. What, what was, what was the, the, the temperament here in the, in the States during that time? You know, you mentioned obviously it was draft time. People were going to war, but uh, what, what was it like? You know, you were for the students, you know, you were a student at that time. Were there protests against the war? Were there uh, people who are, went against it or what was the attitude? Yeah, you had a big, huge uh, protest with that, especially at some of the liberal art colleges like, uh, you know, UCLA, University of Oregon, um, University of Washington. Uh, when I was at the University of Oregon, we had demonstrations where they had to bring in the National Guard and to, to, you know, kind of uh, calm everything down. Um, and that was always kind of an interesting thing because I had friends of mine that were in the National Guard and then they, you know, they're in class one day and the next day they're walking down the middle of the street with a rifle in their hand. You know, we're going, hey, Bob, how you doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you do yesterday's homework. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it was kind of a, a weird deal, you know, with that kind of thing. And, of course, the, the guys coming back and gals, not too many women, but the guys coming back from Vietnam, people were, you know, you heard the stories. They were spitting at them, calling them names, you know, like it was their fault. And they just got drafted. My draft number was 72, so I was supposed to go. And anybody wow. below about 150, you were going to you were going to Vietnam. There's that that was just the way it went, and so I happened to be in, like I said, in college at the time, and so they just I went to the draft uh, place and they said, well, just stay in school and we'll get you when you get out. And I went, okay, you know, and that's about you know how it worked for me. And I had other friends of mine that got their grades dropped below a C in college. Boom, they were gone. They got the letter from the president saying. Congratulations! You now are in the armed forces. Wow! Wow! That's interesting. <laughs> wow! You it sounds like you lived through some very interesting times. You know, a history that's recent, but I guess people don't really, you know, don't really uh, highlight yeah. it so much. You know, or they don't understand the 
gravity of the situation. So, you know, you get through all that, you know, the, the recession hits, you're struggling for work, as you mentioned, you're trying to look here, you're looking high, you're looking low, you're looking all over, you can't find work. You have a friend, the friend is in Afghanistan. How did how did the friend get over there? Was he, you said mentioned that he was, uh, that he was- He was an engineer over uh, there, engineer. electrical engineer. And he was working on uh, the big base. Uh, you, you call it Bagram. You, you've probably seen that in the news on the withdrawal. That was the largest military base we had over there yeah, uh, in Afghanistan. And he said, hey, you know, apply for this company. Here's the uh, um, um, human resource people and uh, send them your resume. And I think I can probably, you know, they'll probably hire you to come over here and, and do construction management. And so that's what I did. As you mentioned, you know, you not only were you not so familiar with Afghanistan at the time, but, you know, it's not like applying for a job in a different state. I mean, a different city or even a different state. It's you're, you're going completely almost across the world. So when the opportunity was presented, did you jump on it right away or was there some sort of hesitation? No, I jumped on it right away. That's one of the things I guess I always learned is if the door knocks, you know, and opens, you know, go through it. Right. Uh, you know, from when I was, a little, you know, like going back to having a paper out or working in the fields or whatever I was doing, um, you know, I'd always just take that, you know, leap of faith and, and go take on that position. So, yeah. So when that opportunity came now, I'm not going to say I didn't have second thoughts about it at all, because when I got to Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm sitting there in the airport waiting for my flight to take me to the next leg to Dubai, I called my wife and go, is this something I really want to be doing? <laughs> you know? Uh, and she says, Hey, you can always quit and come home. If you, you know, it doesn't work yeah. out for you. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, if I do come home, I could get shot and killed. I mean, you know, this, you know, I'm going to the war zone. Right. So, right. yeah. Okay. So, so while you're, you know, you get there, what, what was the feeling leading up? Were you nervous? You know, before you, you took the flight, you knew the flight was one way you were going there, you were going to work there. Did you have any idea how long the project was going to be at the time or did you were you just going to stay there as long as you needed to? Well, it was for like a year, but I, I uh, you know, I was going to stay there, you know, uh, as long as I, you know, had had, uh, you know, employment. But it was one of those things where um, I went and talked to my mom and dad and let them know that I was going over there and they were just like totally shocked. And they said, you didn't have to go to Vietnam and you're volunteering now to go to, to <laughs> Afghanistan. Yeah. And, you know, my mom was teary-eyed and my dad was just kind of like, what's wrong with you? And I said, well, I got to support my family. I actually had one of my um, in-laws tell me, who was in business for himself, he says, Rich, you need to just stay home and go broke like the rest of us. All right. And that just wasn't in, in me to do that. Interesting. So, you you know, you're leading up, you leave, you know, you're on the plane there. What are your thoughts while you're on the plane flying over there? Are you are you thinking, oh, man, what did I get myself into? Or are you excited for a new opportunity? Um, mostly I was thinking, uh, what did I get myself into? Right. Because I had no idea. I'd, I'd never been outside the country except for, you know, Mexico and Canada. And so I... You know, when I got to uh, over there in the Arab countries, I mean, it was just so I was like a deer in headlights. I had no idea what I was doing, who, you know, where to go, what to do um, type of thing. And I was by myself, you know, and um, so it was it was just a complete shock to me to, to, to try to get around. 
So where were you staying at the time? Did, when you landed, did you know where you were going to be staying at or were you just moving from hotel to hotel? Yeah, I knew I was going to be staying at a hotel, but I didn't know how to get there. <laughs> yeah. And so, <laughs> and so I'm walking around and everybody, you know, is dressed in their, you know, Middle East uh, outfits and everything. And so I happened to see some uh, look like Americans. It looked like your typical um, um we call them PDS, you know, uh, protective service guys, you know, um, Blackwater type people. And so I went up there and I just took a guess that they were Americans. They happened to be. And so they told me they were going to the same hotel. And so that's how I kind of hooked up with them to ride in the cab to get to the hotel and then get back to the airport. Because the next day is when we took the flights to um, actually Iraq, Baghdad. Cool. So you mentioned you touched down, you know, you're not pretty much from what I mean I've never been to Afghanistan but from what I've heard it's a, pretty much a desert and or some seemingly like a desert and then you know you mentioned the culture shock so you, it's almost like you're on a different planet at this point right yeah so first I went to Dubai and that that's uh not in Afghanistan that's that's in the UAE the, the Arab oh, yeah, Emirates Dubai, right, right. yeah and so then the next flight I make it to to Baghdad or we're going to Baghdad and uh there was this uh flight attendant sitting in front of me and she was buckling up as we're getting ready to land and she was all nervous and scared and I said um is there something wrong and she says you've never flown into Baghdad before and I go no and she says you don't know what the corkscrew is and I go no (laughs) and all of a sudden the plane just takes this huge turn and just starts corkscrewing down like it's going to crash towards the ground because if they came in like at a normal airport, like you would in LAX or one of those other ones, you know, they kind of come in low and kind of smooth. Right. It makes it easy to shoot them out of the air. So these jets would actually corkscrew down to the ground. And then just before they hit, they would level out real quick and land on the runway. Wow. Interesting. And of and course, so- <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds like a roller coaster, right? It was. And- it was yes. People were getting sick. I mean, it was, oh, it was, it was not a pleasant thing. I mean, thing. and I'm sure, you know, uh, flying itself is, you know, it can be pretty nerve wracking and, you know, hearing, we, you know, to not get shot down. It's like, what? Get shot down? Like, what, what are you talking about? You know, of course, right. at that time, you know, uh, the, the war, Afghan war was kicked off in October 01. So, you know, at that point, we're pretty much, uh, what was it? Was it 08 at the time? Yeah, this was 08. So, yeah, you know, at that point, you know, we're seven years deep into the war, you know, uh, pretty much things are known. You know, people are, as you mentioned, you know, it's interesting because the country's war torn at this point, but people still have to live, you know, flights still have to go on, things still have to happen. So the fact that people get accustomed to it is pretty interesting, you know, and uh, and you got to see that firsthand. So you get down, you land in Afghanistan. Uh, are you received by your friend there at that point, the, the engineer? No, so this time, yeah, so just to back up a little bit, I'm I'm landing actually in Baghdad, Iraq. Oh, Baghdad, Iraq. Um, and, and then I would go from there to Afghanistan. But when I landed in Baghdad, Iraq, I was walking through the terminal, and I thought I was pretty okay because I was with my American, um, you know, contractors and, um, you know, the, the um, kind of the Blackwater type guys. And all of a sudden, we got separated. And I got shoved in another line. And then I had a, a guy with a machine gun standing there, you know, an Iraqi guard and everything. And he looks at my passport and he says, step over here. So then all of a sudden I'm in, I'm all, I'm separated from everybody. And I have this fear in my mind, like, oh man, if they take my passport, I've heard about people disappearing. I don't right. know what's going to happen to me. Nobody knows where I'm at. And so then they pull me over in this, by this office and the guy looks at my passport and he goes, 
your visa no good. Whoa. Sit here. So then he comes back a little bit later, about 20 minutes, half hour later, and he goes, you need to buy a new visa, $200, $150. So all I had was $300. So basically I knew I was getting shaken down for you know more money. Right. And so I gave him my $150 and he stamped my passport and let me go. Wow, that's interesting. So you know, you make it to back. You go from Dubai, which at the time Dubai was uh, developing, right? Oh, it's like it was like a little Las Vegas. Oh, okay. yeah. So yeah. Dubai, you know, you see the nice Dubai, you see that, and then you move over to Baghdad. You get shaken down for money, which is pretty much night and day, you know. Right. And, and so at this point, are you really starting to feel that you're here, that you're somewhere else? You're not in the U.S. anymore. Yeah, I just felt like there was just no way I was in that. And uh, when I went to go to where I was staying that that day, um, I had these uh, bodyguards uh, held a sign up and I saw it and it said, uh, Mr. Walton. And so I went over to them and they introduced themselves and then they put this this bulletproof vest on me and I didn't know how to put that on. And I'm kind of laughing about that. And I go, is this, is this actually dangerous? And they said, yes. And they put me in a car and we just went driving down to the road and on both sides of the street and turning around and all kinds of stuff, like, you know, uh, really super fast and, and crazy. And I just go, Oh, wow. You know, there again is another, you know, check saying, what did I get myself into? Right. 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 And uh, this whole time, you know, it's a, pretty much a, a, a work, you know, you're there for work. So it's like, you have to go through all this just to get, you know, to a job that you, you know, you're trying to do so you can make money to support yourself and your family. So, but which I'm sure is what kept you level-headed during the time, right? Where you, right, all the whole time that all this craziness is going on, is that what's keeping you sane? Is knowing that you're doing it for your family and for your wife? Yeah, exactly. And and I, you know, and and uh, my three sons, and um, so you know, we go through all that, and uh, and then uh, then a few, and about a week or so later, after I had my orientation, then from there I flew to uh, Afghanistan. Okay, so you're in Baghdad for a little while. You do the orientation, and now yeah. you're on your way to Afghanistan, final destination for where you need right. to arrive. So, are you at this point? Are you still? Are you excited about it? Or are you now feeling a little nervous? I'm both. You know, I, uh, I being in architecture and design and all that stuff. I used, always thought, you know, this is an opportunity to be in history in the making. You know, I'm over here where all the stuff that I read about, you know, with all these, you know, different empires and the Romans and the Greeks and everything like that. And I'm pretty excited about that. But then on the other side of it, I'm just going like, you know, I have no clue of what I'm doing. You know, I, I you know, I have no idea. So you've got your 50 bucks, you moved in, you're moving down, you know, you're flying now to Afghanistan. Once you touch down in Afghanistan, what's the what's the mood there? How's everything there? Uh, the same thing. I had actually had an Afghan general meet me at the airport to help me get me through customs and through all the different, uh, you know, so I didn't have any more people shaking me down for money. Right. Uh, I had to get another um visa there but um i had extra pictures you know that i'd taken you know the out of the little phone booth type of thing you know mm. and um so they made me some new visas there <laughs> and i got in the car they handed me another bulletproof vest to put on 
And this time I thought, okay, I, I, I kind of know how to put this one on. So yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting better at it, you know, but I'm thinking to myself, okay, this vest is okay, but what happens if they shoot another part of my body, like, it's, you know, my head or someplace like that? I, I don't have any protection for that. Um, so that then from there, we went to the house where I'd be spending the next uh, uh, four months. And it, I thought I was going to be on a big, giant military base, uh-huh. you know. And actually, I was in a house out in the city. Wow. Among among the people. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so once you get in there, uh, you know, now you you've been shaken down you've been put in a bulletproof vest twice so now you're starting to understand the gravity of the situation but your focus is still work right you're there to do a job right you're there to complete a task so you know regardless of the circumstances you still need to complete your goal so you get into the house uh was it pretty much we're getting to work right away or where there's was there time for you to settle in no, it was pretty much start work right away. Um, this particular job that I had there, I was on the contracting side, so I was supposed to find work, and then we were actually to do the jobs. Uh, in the time down the road, uh, for the last four years of my career, I was actually um, working for the government, overseeing the projects, because by that time they were turning more of the projects over to um, Afghan contractors uh, and getting away from using, you know, American contractors and and that type of thing. So, but for this first part, I was right getting to work. But then I'd soon realized that there was no signs on the street. There's no telephone books or anything to tell you where all the different suppliers were at. Eighty percent right. um, of the people in Afghanistan uh, cannot read or write. So this became real apparent to me really quick. Okay, so you know another culture shock there. So you get in there. How are you received by the people? Uh, or how, I mean, I guess you know you would just be seen as an American. So how, how were they? What was the attitude towards Americans there? Uh, for, for me, it was um, a little skeptic at first, but then once I got to, I had an interpreter with me. Um, you know, most of the time he was a young 21 year old guy going to school in the, in, in the, the city there in Kabul, the capital. Uh, he lived with me during the week and then the weekends he'd go home with his family. But um, I, you know, got a real uh, uh, feeling for to help out the people with when I saw what they were living in and what was going on. And so I was always real kind and considerate to everybody there. And so I got a real warm welcoming. And so I would have, you know, people always coming over to my house to, you know, talk to me or help me out with different things. Uh, one of the funniest things I ever had, I said, if I couldn't imagine this in the United States, mm-hmm. but anytime one of the businessmen would come to my house, he asked me if I had enough guns. Wow. <laughs> and were they offering more guns? Yes. Okay. <laughs> to protect myself. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's interesting. So I yeah. know you, you mentioned that you weren't on military property, but were you interacting with U.S. soldiers in the area? No, I would have to go on the military bases to uh, meet with them. Actually, my protection was uh, Afghan soldiers. Wow, interesting. So, yeah. which were trained by the U.S. soldiers? To a at, point, yeah. yeah. In that time, uh, so, so in there, you know, you're getting in there, you're starting to, uh, as you mentioned, you know, your your obligation is to contract 
to oversee jobs. What kind of projects are being oversaw in this situation? Is it are you rebuilding things that are being blown up basically? Yeah, and and building new bases. Oh. Okay. At that time we were still we were still in the uh expansion period, so we were building new bases all around Afghanistan. Um big bases, small bases, outposts, um different types of things. You know, they could be anywhere from uh, a base with, you know, 15, 20 guys to a base with, you know, a thousand. Right. And uh, yeah, I have some information on you here. That says, so I guess this is at this point, you're uh, you're traveling all over the country as a construction manager, right? That's what you're doing there and an architectural right. designer. And it says you're, so you're helping building facilities for not only the U.S., but also Afghan, as you just mentioned, the Afghan armies. Uh, how, how, are the projects expedited because you know obviously the war is going on things need to get done pretty quickly i'd imagine are is there a sense of urgency in every project oh yeah and then, and then there was always this you know the the dangers that were involved mm -hmm. um not until a couple years later did i actually get into where i was building schools for the students uh for boys and girls but at this period in time i was building roads to get out to the different places and things like that and where something first came to, to my mind when I realized what I was getting myself into is we had to go out to Bagram, which was about two hours away, two and a half hours away. I had to pick a day. And I just said, well, I had also I had two Christian Lebanese that lived with me. They were my personal bodyguards and they lived in the house with me and they were with me wherever I went, where whatever I did. And so uh, they got the cars and we were going to drive out to Bagram. Uh, like I said, about two hours away. And they said, what day? And I said, Wednesday. Well, on Tuesday, they had a car bomb on that road and it blew up the car and, and killed all the people in it. Wow. And so then Wednesday, we drove out there. We could see where that happened. And then mm -hmm. Thursday after we, the next following day, that same thing happened again with a, you know, um, bomb in the road. And I remember one of my uh, uh, bodyguards said to Mr. Rich, you picked a very good day. And so I all of a sudden it dawned on me that any decision I make could cost somebody their lives. I, you know, I really wasn't signed up for, you know, to do make those kind of decisions, um, mm -hmm. you know, with people. And since they were Christians and we were in a Muslim country, they, after that would always commonly say, I'd say, so uh, where we're going today, how dangerous is it? And they would kiddingly and both laugh and say, Mr. Rich, I think we're going to see Jesus today. <laughs> I mean, right? That that, that can't that can't really be a calming statement to hear, you know. No, <laughs> but it's definitely, you know. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because uh, there's a certain you have to have a certain level of realism, right? As you mentioned, you know, right. you're you're not, you know, you didn't sign up for that, but you are now. You're in a country where, you know, pretty much anything goes in terms of there's a war going on, you know. So as you mentioned, there's car bombings going on. So is your, you know, your mortality, you know, you're asking how dangerous things are. Obviously, your mortality is starting to come into your mind a little bit, right? Where you're, you're, are you communicating with your family, telling them, you know, I don't know if I'm going to make yeah, it. Yeah, I was day. able, yeah, I was able to, uh, on most times, be able to have internet service so that I could Skype uh, with my wife, uh, okay. you know, on, on, you know, on a, on a, um, you know, daily basis or maybe not quite so daily, depending on if I was on a mission or not. That was the other thing. In the United States, if you want to go do something, you just go do it. You hop in your car, you drive, you go do it. Anytime I wanted to go anywhere or do anything, we had to set up a mission. I had to get a threat assessment, had to realize, you know, how am I going to get there? 
Uh, they always had a second car with me in case our car got, you know, damaged or shot up or blown up or whatever. They could rush me into another car and move me along and get me out of there. I mean, it was stuff that, uh, you know, you just, it was like it being in a movie. Um, and then when it finally, I was, you know, all upset and just, you know, just didn't know what to do. And I felt like I was way over my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, one day I had an Afghan general at my house explaining how safe I was. And at that time, a car bomb went off in front of our house. Wow. And um, the shockwave came through and blew me, uh, blew me over and blew all the windows out of our house. And as the big Afghan general picked me up, he just looked at me and he just laughed. And he goes, what, Mr. Rich? <laughs> We're still alive, aren't we? <laughs> and at that point, I realized I didn't really have much control over whether I lived or died. And so that kind of changed my whole mindset for my next four years of how I uh, maneuvered and, and got along over there in Afghanistan. All right. Um, so, and of course, I want to get into the humanitarian work and all that right. stuff uh, eventually. But before we get there, I do want to ask. So, you know, at the time that you're working with the closely, more closely with the militaries and the armies, is there any projects that really stood out to you? I mean, obviously, there's those moments like those where, you know, you're coming pretty close to death. And I'm pretty sure those are unforgettable. But were there any projects that you really remember that stood out uh, right now that you can think of? Um, well, um, you know, a lot of the the ones that stood out for most were, you know, a couple years later. But that was just mm. because, you know, that was the girls and the, and the uh, boys uh, schools. Yeah. But um, for as far as the military goes, it was just typically doing roads uh, type construction at that time. Um, I didn't get a whole lot involved with a lot of the uh, construction on the military bases because we were bidding on the projects, but we were always being underbid mm. um, on them. So I uh, didn't have any like uh, work at that time that we actually I could point a finger at and say, you know, we really did a lot, you know, here and, right. and there. Um, we did have where we'd have connexes. Uh, you know, your, your viewers might be familiar with those. They're kind of like the containers mm-hmm. that we would ship out to different areas and set them up, you know, for people to live in and, and have offices in. But, uh, yeah. So, so was there a lot of, um, you mentioned there the, the underbidding. There was obviously a lot of competition for the projects, right? Yes, a lot. Were these, were these mostly American contractors like yourself who had came over, or was it a mix? It was a mix of American contractors and then local contractors, contractors from Turkey, uh, other countries also mm-hmm. bidding on them. That's interesting, right? Because that's something maybe that people, you know, obviously in war we understand the violence, but then there's also an entire economy being built off of war. You know, it's unfortunate. I mean, people don't like to look at it like that, but that's what it is, right? There's opportunity arises, you know, there's jobs that need to be done. And, you know, people need to, as you're mentioning, they bid for these jobs and people want to come in and take the jobs and, you know, make money off of the destruction that's happening there. But at least there's somebody that's trying to fix it, you know. And uh, so let's let's move down now to, as you mentioned, a couple of years later. Uh, at what point do you start to move away from the uh, military work and start to or I guess, I don't know if it would still be considered military work but the the PRT here the the provincial reconstruction team is that was that where you went right after yeah well what I did is I ended up coming home um, mm. after about four months and tried to restart up my business and it just wasn't happening the, the recession was still going on so then I got a call to come back and so everybody said what are you doing going back and so then I I actually ended up going back 
uh, this time working kind of as a contractor for the government and overseeing their projects and kind of supervising them, helping the Afghans to, you know, uh, hone in on getting better construction skills and uh, mentoring them and coaching them on, on how to build things. And so then I did that for two years with the Air Force. And then my dream job was what you're talking about all is, is we call it the PRT, the Provincial Reconstruction Team, because there I was out in the boonies. I had a backpack and a sleeping bag, and I was just uh, hopscotching all over the country, helping out with different projects that would come up, uh, working for, you know, doing the schools for the girls and the boys um, to, you name it, um, doing all kinds of stuff. I'm doing outposts for the special forces. You know, no one ever thinks about who actually builds the little buildings or whatever is on top of the mountain where they're at. And it was people like myself that they'd throw us on a helicopter, take us up and say, okay, can you help build some buildings here? Just simple ones. And then that's what we'd do. Nice, nice. So, you know, uh, so was that presented to you like that when you were, you know, when you came home? You know, as you mentioned, things still weren't working out. The opportunity was still better in Afghanistan. So did they, did you know right away you were going to be a part of this PRT or was it um, something that came about? Well, the first, the first two years, uh, I was part of the Air Force uh, uh, program. And then when I was over there, I found out about the PRT. And that's when they uh, connected with a person that was leaving and they, they wanted me to fill in their position over there because of my knowledge and that I'd already been there two years, you know, straight. Mm -hmm. And so I knew the lay of the land. I knew how things went together. And so that's how I got involved with the, the PRT over there in that area. But um, before the PRT, I was doing a lot of things that a lot of other construction managers weren't doing. Most of the construction managers didn't want to go off base, you know, rightfully so, because it was dangerous. And, one day I was sitting in my tent and this colonel came in and he saw the sergeant that was sitting at the front of our, our tent. And he says, does anybody in here know how to draw? And he pointed back towards me and he says, oh, Mr. Rich does. And so that's what I was being called was Mr. Rich, because a lot of people in Afghanistan only have one name. And mm -hmm. so uh, he came back and said, can you draw up some buildings for me? And I said, yeah, sure. I'll send them up to my headquarters in, in Bagram and they can. No, no, no. I don't have time for that. Uh, we just had a base overrun. We got to have somebody that can draw the stuff up like right now. And so I said, okay, I'll draw them up for you. But when do you want them by? And he goes, tomorrow. And I said to myself, are you crazy? <laughs> and then he showed me the buildings. They're fairly simple. So mm. I stayed up all night drinking energy drinks. And some of your uh, um, listeners might be familiar with it. It's called Rippets. It's sold at Dollar Tree. That's the only place in the United States I know it sells this stuff. <laughs> it's rock that energy drinks. And coffee, I stayed up all night drinking that stuff. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. My heart was like beating out of my chest. He showed up the next day. Uh, I kept looking at the door going, please don't come through yet, Colonel. Please don't come through yet, Colonel. And finally, I got it done, handed him the CDs so that he could print them off on his copy machine. Because AutoCAD is not, uh, you know, it doesn't work with, you know, other systems. And so mm -hmm. you have to change the PDFs. And so I said, well, here you go. Colonel, and I said, I just want to let you know that, uh, you know, I burned through all my energy drinks. And so um, at that time, they were starting to not allow energy drinks on a lot of the bases because they were because the soldiers were, you know, getting dehydrated from them. I didn't think anything about it. 
couple of weeks later, the sergeant says, Rich, we need you to go out to the runway of a plane's coming in. We got to pick up a package. So this, just like right out of the movie, here comes the C-130 with the four engines and kind of lands. I drive up my little tiny little pickup I have and the ramp comes down and this Air Force airman comes walking out of the back down the ramp with three cases of energy drinks and says, are you Mr. Rich? I go, yes. <laughs> and he says, compliments of the colonel and handed me the energy drinks. Wow. Wow, that's, that's an amazing story. <laughs> yeah. So, so from that time on, I got the known, and then I made up little business cards I'd always hang out to everybody. And so from there, it just started snowballing in where I was kind of the guy to call to, to do some of these remote things. Nice, nice. So, you know, you're getting, you're getting uh, used to, you know, the, the environment. You're getting used to the urgency, you know, working on a dime. Are you are you picking up any? Are you like learning the language at all? Are you you know is any of that coming into play? Yeah, matter of fact, there's two there, there's several languages, but the two major languages over there are Pashtun and Dari. And so I was trying to take those courses. I I would take a you know correspondent courses on the internet. I take them from the local Afghans there. I would take courses from them in, in learning those two different languages. And I actually had one interpreter lady one time when I was trying to talk to her. She says. Um, Pashtun looks good on your face. And so basically saying she liked the way I spoke Pashtun, which, you know, I, I knew yeah. I wasn't doing a very good job of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, but, um, but yeah, so it was, I was trying to learn as much about the culture. I think that's the other thing, Raul, that made a big difference was that I was always trying to learn about their culture. I knew about Alexander the Great. Uh, he was there in the, in the in 300s, and there was castles that he had built over there. So me being from in architecture field was just like in seventh heaven, looking at all these ruins right. that they didn't even have roads to. I was flying into them with helicopters. Wow, that's amazing. Do you have any pictures from those times? Did you have memories from those times? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's all kinds of pictures I have of them. Oh, cool. And uh, I had one time where I was trying to explain to a brick mason how to how to lay bricks. Yeah. And I thought I explained it to him where he had to put mortar all the way around the brick. And the next day I came back, he was doing it the old way. And I asked my interpreter, I said, you know, like being the, you know, stupid American. Mm -hmm. I said, well, I just explained to him that this was the better way to do it. And the worker pointed up on the hill and here was a castle that Alexander the Great had built uh, 2,000 years ago. And he says, I'm just doing it the same way we did on that building up there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't fix it if it's not broken right he's like yeah exactly standing from how many so I, go, I stand corrected <laughs> yeah yeah oh man that's amazing no okay so you get through the the, air, the work with there with the air force you know they're starting to welcome you with open arms you know you're becoming a part of the team there and then so I, at this point that's when you the opportunity opens up for the prt so were you excited to start doing some of that work you know the humanitarian work there to start helping around did you were you aware that you were going to be doing those things you know there's a few things here that we can get into you know the medical facilities right uh, herat university women's dorms and a variety of other projects um were you aware that you were going to be working on those things or did you just know you were going to be doing something no i was aware of that that we we're going to do that and and uh i i was aware that the other thing it gave me it gave me more flexibility to travel around afghanistan um, because I didn't really have anybody that I necessarily reported to. 
So I had the advantage of, of over the military in that where most people have to have orders and different things that they have to get in order to do things. I mean, I still had to get clearances to go some, to, to certain places, but I had the flexibility that I could be tasked to go, um, you know, over to the special forces to do something for them. And then I could go over to uh, build a, a, oversee a school or uh, go out to where, uh, you know, a medical clinic, but, Keep in mind, these medical clinics were just basically just buildings that they put, you know, equipment into, and they weren't very big um, type of thing, very rudimentary. And for most nurses and doctors, they would just, you know, scringe at what they were because they reused needles and stuff because they had no choice. You know, it was just, you know, that type of thing. But, yeah, and so some days I was wearing uh, a military uniform, uh, Army uh, military uniform, and some days I was in my civilian clothes. Interesting. So, what was the what was uh, the first project that you you know you hop on the team there the PRT you received? Is that was there a headquarters you had to go to to check in at first or? Yeah, there was a small military base that I was on um, over there in the town of Kalat. It's spelled a Q A L A T, mm-hmm. um, and um, so that was kind of like my home base. And then from there, I would you know take flights always with helicopters. I would take flights to other areas in um, throughout Afghanistan, up to where it was called the Hindu Kirsch. That's where mm. uh, you saw the, the movies like Lone Survivor right. and some of those movies. That's I was up in the areas where all those things were at. I was on the base where they went to get um, Bin Laden. Uh, wow. You know, I wasn't there at the time, but I was on that same base. And so I got to travel all kinds of it. Like my first um, uh mission with them was doing uh, a boys and girls school awesome they're separate they have to keep them separate oh, okay cool so you know are you are you at this time are you hearing stories are, are things coming in about what's going on in the war zone or are you guys trying to stay focused no i mean we knew what was going on i mean i was i was mm. getting shot at um you know and so um fortunately i didn't get hit the military was always trying to get me um to be able to carry a weapon and for what other reason or whatever it was, I was never able to, even though they were putting in the request and that type of thing. So the military is always laughing about Mr. Rich, you know, how can you do this without carrying a weapon? I said, well, once a week I watched the matrix. And so I watched how he dodges the bullets. And so when I would explain it to him, I'd kind of lean backwards and I go, you know, like this, you know, and they just yeah, look yeah. and go, Mr. Richard, one crazy old man, you know. Uh, like I got, I got my, uh, my skills in bullet dodging. Don't worry about me. That's right. <laughs> but so, okay, so you get this project for the boys and girls school. At what's the, is it just ground up type of project? Is it something that's already there that you need to fix? No, it just started from scratch. Okay. It just, um, you know, and keep in mind that some of these schools and some of these areas would take like a year or more to build. That mm-hmm. should have, you know, in the United States, it would have taken a couple months. Was that because of the war and everything that's going on? Just that the workers wouldn't show up, um, you know, materials. I mean, how do you get materials out there to these different places? Um, you know, it's just a whole slew of different things that you would have, you know, different contractors would take the money and run. I'm talking Afghan contractors, you know, it's a lot of corruption, um, you know, that type of thing going on. And how frustrating was that? You know, you mentioned the contrast, right? You're used to being a contractor in America where business is held you know things are contractual you have to hold up your end of the bargain 
But, you know, it seems that there wasn't as much honor there. How frustrating is that for you, knowing that you just want to get the job done, you want to get these kids a place that they can learn? How hard was it for you? It was really hard. Um, it, if, if you're in the city or uh, on a big base, it's a little more controlled. But as you got farther and farther out, uh, I would literally tell people it's like being in biblical times. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was the nomads out there with their tents. Um, there's no running water, no electricity. Um, 80% of the people cannot read or write. So how do you explain to somebody to build something? And, and, and on top of that, of course, they don't use the same measuring systems we use. I mean, Afghanistan and those areas over there in Europe, you know, these metric where we use, you know, the feet and inches type of thing. Mm-hmm. So I would literally have to use my feet to tell people to measure something out, use 25 feet or 26, you know, 16 feet, um, use, you know, their hands to measure and uh, even when I'm substitute teaching now, I'll explain to the students, okay, what measurement do we have that we still use that the Egyptians used and went way back? And then I said, it's the hand. So, you know, horses are like 15 hands high, 16 hands high. So we still use that. But you got to remember, if you got a, a, a man with a big foot and a one with a smaller foot, your measurements are going to end right. up different. Right, right, right. So it's, uh, it's an inconsistent measuring system, right? Yes, yeah, and I imagine that's uh, frustrating again because, you know, with construction, with architecture, it requires a certain level of precision. So, you know, trying to kind of create that using an inconsistent system was probably difficult. So, you know, you mentioned it takes a year to do so. Was that how long it took for that school in, in, in particular, a year? Yeah, it took over a year to, to build that, uh, both those schools. Um the uh, Harat dorm that you were talking about over at the university, that took several years. Mm. So uh, were those two projects going on at the same time, the boys and girls uh, school and then the university project? Yes. Yeah, they're just in two different parts of the country. I was over on the Pakistan border. Most of my time was spent on the Pakistan border. The Harat is actually in the city of Harat, and that's over on the west side of Afghanistan. It's on the Iranian border. And were you working with other contractors like yourself at this time, or were you like the? Um, yeah, there was other there was other contractors out there in those areas at, at different locations, um, and then a lot of the times uh, when I was with the PRT, the U.S. government or U.S. soldiers might not be going to a village where I was working on a project, and so then I would travel with other countries like Romania, Italy, these other. Uh, countries that would take me out to those job sites for me were you guys sharing stories like things like that were you kind of trying to get um you know build a sense of uh community while you were in there yeah you know like with the romanians the first time i was with them of course most of them didn't speak very very much english either romanians or Italians. most of them there might be one person in the whole platoon that might speak english or at least want to admit to it so with the romanians i always would kid them about do I ha- are any of you guys from Transylvania? Do I have to worry about any of you guys biting me? <laughs> they thought that was funny because there is actually, you know, Transylvania and Romania. Right, um, yeah, yeah. And the Italians were always late to pick me up whenever they did, but they always brought me coffee and pastry. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. You fun. know, and so, um, yeah, I mean, there was like a camaraderie in, in the war area. Mm-hmm. And then when a lot of the Americans would come over there, uh, you know, a lot of them were trained. They wanted to get out in, you know, into the area and they would have to have a reason to go out 
into you know, outside the wire we call outside base and they'd say well mr rich always needs rides somewhere right. and so next thing you know i had people knocking on my tent door hey mr rich do you guys you need a ride somewhere you need a ride somewhere and so um i was always constantly um you know networking with different units and you got to remember too that with the americans they were there for six to nine months and they rotate out and a new group would come in Mm, right so was that so, was that pretty much you had to meet new people every six to nine months yeah okay. yeah wow and uh so we covered there uh you know the the harat university uh you mentioned you know the medical facilities which were essentially empty units or empty buildings with medical equipment in them um what other projects were being worked on during your time there at the prt um, well, we had, um, wells, we had different things like that. Uh, one time I was, um, called upon to do some, uh, little, uh, buildings inside a village. And so I was on top of a roof with the, uh, some Navy SEALs. They were, uh, assigned to protect me. And so they were down checking out the, um, you know, village to make sure there wasn't any bad guys down there that want to take a pot shot at me. And so I looked over at this Navy SEAL sitting next to me, and he looked like something right out of the movie, right, with the headset on, the beard, you know, the whole thing. And he was listening to, um, on his on his iPod, uh, CCNR, Creedence Clearwater Revival. Yeah. And I listened to I could hear it, and I go, hey, I saw them in concert in 1969. <laughs> yeah. And he looks over and goes, Mr. Rich, how old are you? And I said, well, at that time, I, I was I – was, uh, I was 60 and I go, I'm 60. He goes, you're older than my dad. What are you doing here? And I said, well, when life doesn't go, I mean, go the direction you'd like it to go, you just take a job wherever you can. And he's just going, ah, I just can't believe it, you know? And so um, they all got a big chuckle out of that. So after a while I started doing stuff for the Navy SEALs and helping out with some of their projects. And so then whenever I need to go out to maybe a place that wasn't so uh, friendly, I could call them up and say, hey, would you guys mind taking me out to someplace or this, that? And they go, yeah, sure, no problem. You want to go out Wednesday or Thursday? You know, we'll take you out there. And so um, it was a matter of networking with a lot of different people. And I thought, who would know that I'd out, be out networking in a military zone? Right. I mean, that's that's just amazing to me, you know, the way that even through such a tragic time, you know, there's still connections being made. There's still memories being shared. You know, you mentioned uh, the multiculturalism, you know, you have people from all over the world, you know, coming together with a common goal. I mean, it's really fascinating, you know, and it shows really the the extent and the potential of human beings. You know, if we're willing to come together, you know, we can do incredible things. But at the same time, you know, oftentimes, like they say, it takes the worst times in order to bring people together. But, you know, still it brings people together nonetheless. Uh, so, you know, you mentioned they're building wells and things like that. I want to know, Rich, uh, how good does it feel? You know, how rewarding does it feel to know that you're bringing something like water to, you know, which, of course, we probably take it for granted over here. But in, you know, in a small village, in a small town for, uh, for people who don't have access to something like that, how how good does it feel when you're able to supply a resource like that? Oh, it's just awesome because it's, it's, you know, in many cases, you know, it's, it's, it's such a, uh, almost a matter of life and death with those people because water over there is, is such, you know, an important quantity to have. And, um, you know, one of the things I would always drive me nuts is when I would get 
drawings and different things from America and they'd say, okay, they put an electric well and pump, right? We don't have any electricity out right, there, right. you know? Uh, so I, you know, I'd have to get it changed out with a hand pump, you know, type of thing. And so the disconnect sometimes would drive me a little nuts between, you know, out there and in Washington, D.C., when we'd get different things like that. Um, but, you know, it was it was this awesome where I'd have one time I had an eye level, which I used and they used a water level that goes back to ancient times. Right. And the workers and I would just laugh and giggle as we were trying to measure different stuff using our different tools to see if we came up with the same, you know, angles and solutions and stuff like that. And, you know, we, we did. And so they would teach me their ways of doing certain things. And then I would teach them, teach them mine. But in every case, um, they were so friendly and so kind to me. It was one of those things where, you know, it's like anything, I guess, in a war that I never really thought about. It's always the local people that take the brunt of everything, you know, and it's definitely. sometimes the, the leaders that get us into these messes. Right, right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's incredible to hear. Um, to hear that that ray of hope, that ray of positivity that always shines through. Uh, so yeah, so we're getting, uh, you know, we pretty much covered, you know, your work, your childhood, growing up, everything, the awesome stuff that you did, moving around the Middle East and then your location. So was that where the you mentioned right there at the end that you were getting into? It was the Navy SEAL stint, the last leg of your work over there in Afghanistan. Well, they were part of a group of it. You know, I worked with so many different organizations. I worked with the Italians. Uh, I worked with, uh, um, like I said, um, the Romanians. I spent a lot of time with them on different projects that we had and they had. I worked with the uh, Lithuanian Special Forces. I found out that I had a project that I had to uh, work on. And they said, well, if you can help us out with this project that we're working on, we'll, we'll take you out to yours. And so it became kind of a, you know, you know, I help you, you help me type of thing. And we'd always have and my, uh, the Lithuanians loved honey. So I had my wife ship over honey from our local farms where I live and I would give it to them, you know, type of thing. Um, so you're always changing things like that around. Um, but I spent a lot of time on uh, helicopters. Sometimes I was the only person on the helicopter, you know, um, flying to one place or another. Um, so, yeah, so towards the end is when I was working with all the different diverse groups that were out there and about. That's cool. So what what, what were the last days like? You know, once you you know you've uh, what you four years was it four years that you were out there for? Yes, yeah, so I was out there. The last stint I was out there for four years straight. So the last you know you've been there for four years. You've seen a lot. You've been through a lot of projects. You got to um, you know connect with the people there. You've connected with. You know, again, the people from different cultures. What what was it like? Did did you know ahead of time the day you were leaving? Was it like okay, your your last day's coming up, or did you plan to go come back? Yeah, I mean, I would have stayed there. Uh, you know, if I could, another ten years. Um, I I enjoyed working with the people, and I felt like I was not only helping out the local people, but I was also helping out the American soldiers. So a lot of times, I'd go out to the outpost and I would take them. You know all kinds of care packages and things like that with different things in it. And, um, you know, felt that that was being able to supply them with those type of things. But what came about was we started withdrawing and closing down bases. And so they decided to quit funding the PRT. And so I was actually the last PRT person in Afghanistan to leave. 
And so I knew that, you know, on this certain date, I would be on a plane heading back uh, to America. And when was this? That was in 2015. Oh, 2015, yeah. Because I, uh-huh. I, I think the official, you know, that was, things were starting to die down, but uh, all the way up until what, last, I think they officially withdrew, what was it, August of last year? Yeah, we had, you know, we had hundreds and hundreds of bases over there. Yeah. And that's just Americans. And you had every, uh, like we talked to a little bit earlier, you had almost every country. I was shocked, every country in the world over there. Um, I landed on a base one time over there, and it was full of Mongol. that was run by Mongolians. Wow. And I thought, what are you guys doing over here right. in the war? You know? Um, so... Yeah, it was always different countries that I was just shocked that they were over there uh, in that in that area. But yeah, so I knew exactly what what date I'd be leaving um, because they they discontinued the program and they said, well, um, you know, we're not going to no no more PRT, uh, and so you're you know going to have to be leaving here uh, January first. Okay, so um, what was it like the day you know January first? The day comes. You have to go. Did you feel like your job was complete or did you feel like there was still things that needed to be done? No, I felt like there were still lots of things to to be done because I felt, you know, there was a lot of, uh, you know, more infrastructure could have been done. I think one of the major things I was really disappointed in is we didn't build very many, uh, if any, manufacturing things. And, and one of my things I saw was as we closed down the bases, uh, where would the Afghans go to work? Right. You know, because each base would employ anywhere from a hundred to thousands of Afghans, and they've been on these bases. Remember, we've been there all now for twenty years, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So, if a kid started picking up garbage on a base at ten years old, you know, he's now twenty, thirty years old, and that's all he known is working on that base. Right, right, right. So, you know, you're you're, you're leaving there. That was in two thousand and fifteen. So, um. I want to ask, but before I get there, so once you leave, uh, you know, in one, I mean, uh, fifteen, sorry, you get back. What what's your what's your plan as soon as you get back? Um, I really didn't know, um, to what I was going to do. Um, you know, you talk about you know the the coming back and having all kinds of different things. I had been. You know, like I said, I had been literally uh, in explosions. Fortunately, I'd, I'd never been, you know, really hurt, uh, just mostly just blown over. Um, I had been shot at several times. And so, you know, fortunately, I was never hit. I had some of my, um, we call them guardian angels, U.S. Uh, American soldiers that, mm-hmm. you know, protected me. And when I went on missions, they had unfortunately been killed. Um, so you come back with all these emotions and everything and, I just really, I didn't know, I knew I didn't want to do architecture anymore. I, I didn't have the patience or, you know, where for all to kind of do that. So I came home and fortunately for me, uh, I got a call within about two or three weeks to uh, go to uh, Kazakhstan and build little small bases up there in Kazakhstan. And that went for another two years, but it was in a much less stressful um, environment. And so that kind of helped me mellow out. And then when I came back from that, uh, my two younger sisters talked me into becoming a substitute teacher. And so that's what I've been doing for the last uh, four, four or five years. <laughs> yeah. So how did they, um, 
how they do that? Was it just were they substitute teachers themselves, and did they kind of just tell you about all? The no, um, <laughs> I'm their older brother, and oh. so they were both teachers, and they both actually are retired now. Oh. And so they said, "Well, you like to talk in front of people, and you like to t tell stories." So, so well, we need substitute teachers. And I said, "Well, I can't be a substitute teacher because I don't have a teaching uh, license and." Mm -hmm credentials. And they said, well, in Oregon, we have a new law that if you have a college degree, you take a couple little quick courses and you can become a substitute teacher because they needed them. So I, without really thinking about it, thought, okay, because I talked to high schools and classes and things like that. And the kids always sat there just very attentive for 45 minutes, right? right. <laughs> well, after my first day of doing this for sixth grade, uh, and, and everybody's bouncing off the wall. I thought, what am I getting myself into? It's like 80% <laughs> yeah. classroom management and 10% instruction. I called my two sisters and they're both laughing and giggling and going, payback, older brother, payback. Okay. This is, you're in it too deep now. Um, you can't, you can't uh, get out of it. And so I took what I learned over in Afghanistan, seeing the children in the schools. And I realized a very important lesson that education is so important to any society. Right. And so I figured with the whatever years I have left, I'm 71 right now. I said, I'm going to give back as much as I can and try to help kids, especially kids that maybe are coming from a disadvantaged area. I share with the kids my story is growing up, how I was a terrible reader. Um, I didn't do very good in school until I got to high school. And then I just started working towards it. So I said, you don't have to be the best person at everything you know, if you just kind of apply yourself. So um, that's that's kind of been my burning um, mission right now is, is to sit down with these kids. And I've had where in some of the fourth, fifth and sixth graders where I've they've had me actually sit out in the hallway and talk to some uh, young boys that aren't living in the best environment. Mm -hmm. And I explained to them about, you know, here's what you can do with yourself. You know, here's how you can apply yourself. And I actually had one of the boys uh, this last year just started high school. I didn't know if he'd make it. And he yelled out across the street, Mr. Rich, you remember me? And I go, yes, I remember you. And he goes, I just want to thank you. And and I said, great. I'm glad you're still in school, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. Definitely. I mean, that's one of the things, right, about, um, about our country. You know, I feel like uh, teachers are definitely underappreciated. And the value of education goes... Uh, undervalued as well you know and I, that definitely gives a bad uh perception to the kids because if you know if the country's not valuing the education then you know then you see their kids start to take it less serious and it's just a detriment to everybody and um yeah but i can imagine having you as a teacher i would have probably been more interested too to have a teacher <laughs> that could tell us stories about you know oh i was in afghanistan and you know i was building stuff and you know you know you guys should really uh, appreciate this stuff because there's kids you know that are a lot less fortunate than you guys, but uh, well, and they, yeah, uh, and they have books that some of them read now. It's called one's called I Am Malala. It's about a, a Pakistani girl that was shot because she mm -hmm. was trying to get an education. And I was share with myself, oh, I see you guys are reading the book I Am Malala. I said I built schools for her tribe. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I said not her That's particular awesome. tribe, but of her tribal people. You know, on the Afghan side of the border, not on the Pakistan side of the border. And the kids were really, and so I kind of validate some of the things that are going on over there with them. And um, I've had teachers that have less, left me a student uh, lesson saying, because uh, I just go by Mr. Rich because it's just easier for the kids to remember and everything. And they just go, uh, Mr. Rich, here's a lesson plan. But if you want to tell stories, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Probably keep them a little bit more calm, right? Just to hear, right. hear all the stories and stuff, all the fun stories. No, that's, 
That's awesome. So is that pretty much what you've been doing up until now, just substitute teaching? Yeah. So yeah, I've been and then writing, you know, writing the I wrote the book that took me, you know, about four years to to write. Mm. So the last thing before we get into the the book, uh, I definitely want to talk about the book. But before we get there, I want to ask you. So how did you feel in uh, last year and in the beginning of this year? With the withdrawal of, uh, you know, forces from Afghan Afghanistan, and then you know there was news articles and there was videos of people basically chasing the plane trying to get out of Afghanistan to save their own lives. You know, they were, uh, I mean, it was a do or die situation, so you know they had no choice but to risk their lives. How did you feel being somebody who, not only did you go there, but you lived with the people, you lived among the people, as you mentioned, you became. Uh, you know, you educated yourself on the culture. In a sense, you could say you became a part of the culture there. And, you know, you really helped a lot of those people. You know, how, how did you feel? And, and what do you think about the response or the American decision to withdraw in such a sudden fashion? Well, you know, first of all, you know, I'm, I'm just an average civilian that was over there, you know, mm-hmm. trying to help out. And so I, I can't really go on, you know, know what the military pros and cons for what they did. I didn't like it. Um, I had interpreters that were calling me and constantly contacting me saying, help me get out of here, help me get out of here. Because basically, if you work for an American um, base or or any of the European bases over there, uh, it was an automatic death sentence. And people in America are a little naive. I was, you know, that there are just plain evil people in the world. and, And they will, you know, kill them because they work for us. I had interpreters that worked in other parts of Afghanistan because they didn't want their family or any of their relatives to know that they were working for Americans because they knew that the Taliban would come in and kill their family and them if they had the opportunity to do it. So um, most of my interpreters now are all out. They're all in um, the United States or, or Canada or Britain. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. I was a little disappointed in that the last one of my uh, interpreters that I talked to he had to actually go to the French to help him get his family out. Um, so I, I felt like, you know, we kind of uh, didn't do our obligation to get them out. Um, I don't know what decision-making policies there were, because, again, I'm not military, but I would explain to people that Bagram, which was the bigger base we had there, was almost impenetrable. It was a former Russian base that had mines all the way around it you know, because the Russians mine everything. So it was almost impossible to get in and out unless a certain couple um, areas. Um, so that would have been the base that I would have had everybody get out of. I tell people that the Kabul base looks like something, or airport looks like something like the Portland airport where you have barbed wire and cyclone fence and not much protection around it. Right. So I don't know why they did that from that base. Um and then just the idea of people saying, well, everybody make it to, you know, the airport and we'll get yeah. you out. It don't happen that way in a country like Afghanistan where there isn't very many roads, you know. Um, so it was it was just a disappointment on, on, on my part, you know, to see that happen like that. Yeah. Well, thank you for giving us your perspective on that. Um, yeah. so, so now I want to talk about, you know, getting to the latter part of the, the podcast here. I just want to talk about your book. Can you kind of tell us what the book's about? Uh, you know, everything like that. Sure. So originally uh, we talked, covered a little bit about, I was up in uh, Kazakhstan and, and sometimes I'd be stuck out in a desert area up there or up in Siberia uh, for months at a time. 
uh, with kind of not a lot to do. And so I, my wife said, you know, everybody's always asking about what you did, where, you know, where you went and stories about, you know, how you did things and accomplished things and go around. Why don't you write a book about it? And I said, well, I didn't know how to write a book. I'm, I'm not a, you know, a English major. And she says, right. no, just start from when you got there and just start telling stories and just put them on a word document and we'll edit it when you get home. So, that's what I did. I started writing down just the different stories and try to remember things that I was doing at the different bases. So it just covers all the um, humorous and laughable things I had with different people, like, um, you know, stories that, that I would tell. Uh, I, I have a chapter in there called Cat and Nine Lives, where the military would always laugh about it and say, Mr. Rich, you're like a cat with nine lives. And when you get to number eight, we don't want to be anywhere around you. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I had people drop grenades in front of me and bounce and not go off. I mean, it's just one story after another in there. Um, one of my favorite stories is is working with the uh, local lady that came in and cleaned my house in Kabul. And I got her one of those cleaning brushes for, for uh, you know, a toilet. Mm -hmm. And so they explained her to clean that. And so she would clean my toilet. Well, she thought it was a universal brush because remember, she's growing up in a, a mud brick house, no water, no sewer, no nothing. So right. she cleaned the toilet and then she cleaned the mirror and then she went over and thought she'd do a really good job. So she cleaned my, pulled my toothbrush out of the cup and cleaned my cup and then, you know, scrubbed my toothbrush for me. So they got extra clean without rinsing out the brush. <laughs> but right. so I wrote, I wrote the book um, on that. Uh, out there in, in those the boonie areas out there came back and then you know my wife and I rewrote it and re-edited it and got editors on it involved in it and so it was a uh, you know a four-year uh, process to get it finally done and completed and so now that you know it just came out this last year and it's you know it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all those places and then I have a website too that has more stories that people can go and just read stories that I've written, you know, that are in addition to the book. But um, it just tells about my experiences over there as just a contractor that, you know, didn't know what was going on. I was, I have no agenda, you know, just kind of what I saw and felt and what went on. Right. And what was the title of the book again? Yeah, the title of the book is One Brick at a Time. And the reason I do that is because on some of the projects, we actually had to make the bricks out of clay and then sunbake them. You know, just like they did back in the old Egyptian days. Right. Yeah. Old school. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, everybody who's listening, um, Rich has told us, you know, awesome stories. He told us about how he came up, you know, his journey all the way to the Middle East and then his journey throughout, um, you know, and plenty of awesome stories here. But if you want to hear even more, you know, definitely check out his book. I recommend it. Uh, and I'll be checking it out for sure. So. Uh, you guys go over to Amazon, as Rich said, and uh, One Brick at a Time by Rich Walton. So uh, Walton is W-A-L-T-O-N, by the way. So Yeah, yeah. And, and also they could go to my website where mm. I have uh, sample chapters and stuff they could read if, if, uh, free of charge. And that's One Brick at a Time and then P-R-E-S-S, press, onebrickatatimepress.com. Cool, yeah. And we'll have all that stuff in the description of the video. And uh, on Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well. So if you guys want to uh, check out, just go down, click the links, and then you guys will be able to check those out and read the samples there. And then, you know, definitely I would recommend you guys support Rich's uh, book. You know, as you can tell, he's been through a lot of things, and you can definitely find some inspiration in, in some of the stories that are being told there. But, yeah, Rich, before we get out of here, though, we have something that we always do on the podcast. We like to ask these eight questions 
uh, that pretty much just served the purpose of humanizing the guests a little bit. You know, we've heard your whole story, but uh, these questions just kind of go a step further in trying to understand the guests. So uh, if you don't mind, we just have these questions sure. ready here to ask. Uh, let me just pull them up real quick. So the first question is going to be, uh, what inspires you to do what you do? Uh, now, it, what inspires me to do what I do now is seeing what the lack of education can do in other countries. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Next question. Um, do you have any advice for others, whether it be people in your position, whether it be people pursuing a career in architecture, or just general advice or quotes that um, that you live by? Uh, I would say that one of the things I would suggest was that never take no for an answer, you know, um, and just keep going and, 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 and keep pushing through. Uh, like I tell the students today, I said, you know, um, to start is to be 50%, you know, complete on working on things. Um, my kind of mentor that I go by is that, and I'm probably not going to, quoted exactly right but um it doesn't matter what kind of house i live in or what kind of car i have what really matters is the difference i make in a child and so that's kind of what i live by now and so that's why i do the substitute teaching wise words to live by uh next question can you tell us about the first time that you ever felt accomplished you know that first time that you ever had that real i did it feeling um, just in my life or overseas? Yeah, and, no, just in your life, you know, it can be an early memory. You know, we've had people tell us about things they did as kids, you know, you know, uh, even graduating college, you know. When was the first time that you can remember that you really felt like you had accomplished something? Uh, I would say the first time I felt like I really accomplished something is, um, you know, was a, was a sports type of situation where, I had worked and worked and worked hard trying to make the football team and when I was in high school and um, never got to play much. And, and even the coach even told me at one time, you know, quit, I'm never going to play you. And then in the last game, uh, somebody got injured, they put me in. And afterwards, the coach told me, he said, I really made a big mistake in not playing you. Uh, you know, I, I'm glad you stayed with it. And so that always, you know, stick and stay and make it pay. Right, right, awesome. Yeah, another inspirational story. Uh, can you tell us some of your goals that you have right now, whether they be uh, personal or professional? Um, well, I would say my goal right now is to um, work with many students as I can and try to give them my life experiences um, and to help maybe encourage them to, you know, don't give up and keep going. Whether, you know, it doesn't, everybody doesn't have to go to college, you know, and so you can, you know, go into the trades. There's so many different things you can do, but just don't give up. Um, I had a young girl the other day. Uh, she was graduating from high school. And uh, anyway, she's not from a very good home. And I asked her, she asked me, she said, well, well, how do I do my homework? This is an example of, you know, what I do. And she says, I go home. I, I make dinner for my family. I help my younger brothers and sisters to do their uh, homework. And then I do laundry. And I have no time for any of my other stuff. And I said, so what do you want to do in life? And she, or what do you like doing? She says, I have no idea. I, I know I can't go to college. I can't do any of that stuff. And I says, but do you like to cook? And she said, yes. And I said, you know what? Let's go to, you go to the counselor and talk to him about seeing what cooking schools might be or classes might be available for you at the community college. I said, 
you could then possibly get a job on a cruise ship. And you can you imagine this traveling all around the world and getting paid to do it while you're cooking on a cruise ship? Her eyes were all just lit up. You know, I'd given her hope. Awesome. No one ever talked to her about anything like that. Right, right. That's awesome. Um, can you tell us, uh, you kind of mentioned their life experiences, and, you know, we spoke a lot about your early life and things like that, but the question is, have how have your life experiences affected the way that you maneuver through life today? I think it was always um, never being the best athlete, never being the best student, but just always just, you know, keep working at it. Mm-hmm. And just knowing, you know, that, you know, that it's going to be a roughy road. And um, I think in an early life, I learned that life isn't always fair. And, you know, you just have to, you know, acknowledge that and just keep going. Awesome. Uh, the last two questions here are the shortest questions, but often sometimes the hardest to answer. Uh, the first one is going to be, uh, what do you love? Um, I love, you know, you know, having my health, having still being able to be out there and do, do things. Um, I love, you know, some days I love going to school. I'm not going to kid you. Some days I come home and I'm banging my head on the steering wheel in the driveway going, what am I doing with myself? Um, but I feel like I love giving something back, you know, to, to other people. Um, you know, as far as just personally what I love, of course I love, you know, skateboarding uh not so much anymore but the kids get a kick out of that thinking that an old seven-year-old man can be on a skateboard i like surfing i like hiking like riding horses you know i like doing those type of things um but uh, most of all i just feel it's a mission just to kind of give something back that's awesome Uh, and the last question uh what are you afraid of um I, you know, that that's an interesting question. You know, before I would say that uh, as maybe with many people, I was afraid of, you know, maybe passing away, um, mm. you know, death is you know, that type of thing. After coming back from Afghanistan, that's really not no longer a whole lot of my concern, having lived through what I've lived through and, uh, you know, get more detail if you go to my book, but I'm not trying to push it, but that's just, you know, that type of thing. Um, so I, I guess, you know, I'm fortunate that I have a family. And so, you know, I, I just, you know, don't want to end up like in a nursing home. I'd rather, you know, (laughs) stay healthy and do what I do, you know? It's awesome. And well, with that, we're at the end of the podcast. Uh, Again, we just want to thank Rich for uh, coming on and sharing his, uh, his knowledge, his experience and his, uh, insight with us, you know, it was an incredible podcast. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. And as always, you know, on the bottom left of the screen, we have the social tag for the, uh, brand, you know, in the cut at in the cut global that's on Instagram, on Twitter, on TikTok. And if you're watching this, then you probably already know we're on YouTube. We also recently got on Spotify and Apple podcasts as well. So, uh, do us a favor and check us out on those you know if you you don't have the time to be sitting around and listening on youtube then uh go ahead and put the podcast on while you're driving or working out or whatever the case but yeah uh, again people we thank you for listening and we appreciate all the support that we've been getting uh and don't forget to check out rich's book one brick at a time on amazon and you can also check out the website in the description uh but yeah as always guys be safe take care and peace